Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. I want to start by telling you about something that happened to me about 13 years ago. So at the time, I was at the University of Salford studying, and it was just before Christmas, a couple of days before Christmas. So I was on my way to the airport to get um, a flight home to Munich to spend Christmas um, at home with my family in Munich. But you'll never guess what happened as I was on the train to the airport. It started to snow. And we had about half an inch of snow. But that obviously meant that almost all the flights got cancelled, including my flight to Munich. And because the weather forecast gave even more snow for the next day, I knew that there wasn't going to be a chance for me to get a different flight. So I knew if I wasn't going to get out of Manchester that day, I would probably spend Christmas on my own in Salford, which I'm sure you all agree is very depressing, yes. So, but luckily, luckily, there was still one final flight to Germany on that day that hadn't been cancelled. So, thanks to my dad's credit card, I managed to get a seat on that flight, and with about six hours delay, um, I left Manchester, and a couple of hours later, I arrived in Germany. However, I arrived nowhere near Munich, I arrived in a tiny little tin shed airport on the outskirts of a really small town in Germany called Paderborn. And now, if you asked anybody in Germany, probably most people wouldn't be able to find Paderborn on a map, I would imagine. It's not the kind of place you go to for any reason, really. It's not, you don't go to Paderborn. But anyway, I arrived in Paderborn, got off the flight. It was the middle of the night. I slept on a bench for a couple of hours at this airport. I was the only person in the whole airport, apart from a couple of security guys. And then at around five o'clock in the morning, I was ready to start my 350-mile journey back to Munich. With snow chaos and cancelled trains, and I somehow made my way back through loads of tiny little towns I'd never even heard of. Um, it's all a bit of a blur, to be honest. But somehow, somehow I managed to get back to Munich for Christmas. Um, and so I was home for Christmas. But yeah, basically, a journey that should have taken a couple of hours in the end um, took nearly 24 hours. And I'm sure most of us will have stories similar to that where a journey took a lot longer or was a lot more difficult than expected. And maybe we'll be able to share our stories over coffee later on. And maybe we can see who's got the best story. Um, but before we do that, I want to um, look at a different journey, which... Um, to be fair, didn't include as much snow or maybe not as many cancelled trains and planes, but it did go through a lot of very small places that we probably have never heard of, um, and also it included a lot of unexpected events along the way. Um, so this morning we're looking at Paul's first missionary journey. We are continuing our sermon series through Acts, and we'll be looking at chapters 13 and 14. It's a pretty long passage. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk us through the major events um, on this journey. And what I want us to see as we do that, um, basically two priorities that I think we can see what Paul was all about. Paul was basically all about the gospel and all about the church. And that's what I want us to see this morning. First one, gospel relevance, and second one, church importance. 
Um, and before we start, um, I just want to um, briefly um, explain what the gospel is, because the word gospel is going to come up a lot today. So we'll hear lots about Paul preaching the gospel and people responding to the gospel and all of that. So we've, um, before we get stuck in, I just, um, I've got a definition from John Piper of what the gospel is. It says this, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins and rose again, eternally triumphant over his enemies, so that there is now no condemnation for those who believe, but only everlasting joy. The gospel is the good news that God bought for us the everlasting enjoyment of God. Okay, right, okay, so let's start by tracing Paul's um, journey. You can follow along chapters 13 and 14. So the journey starts in a place called Antioch in Syria. It's, uh, at the time, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, and not to be confused with a different Antioch, which we'll come across later. So it, um, the journey takes place at around 48 AD, and basically prompted by the Holy Spirit, the church in Antioch, they gather around Paul and Barnabas and commission them for the work they have been chosen to do. And so Paul and Barnabas leave Antioch and uh, start their journey, and their first stop is Salamis in Cyprus. Um, there they proclaim the word of God in the Jewish synagogues, and then they move on to the other bit, the other side of Cyprus, to Paphos. <clears throat> Here they face severe opposition by a Jewish sorcerer. Paul strikes him with blindness, and as a result of this miracle, the governor of Cyprus comes to believe in God. Then Paul and Barnabas leave Cyprus, and the rest of the journey is now going to take place in the southern part of modern-day Turkey. So they get to Pisidian Antioch, which is the other Antioch, and here Paul preaches the following sermon at a local synagogue. And I'm just going <clears> to <throat> read, well, a good chunk of the, it's a very long sermon, I'll read a good chunk of it anyway. Um, so Paul says this, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then, then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. <clears throat> From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you're looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and ye God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. And then we skip ahead to verse 38. 
where he says, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. And then Paul finishes his sermon with another quote from the Old Testament. And basically, all the people who hear this, they are really interested and really keen to hear more. So they invite Paul and Barnabas back the next Sabbath to preach again. And at that point, it says that almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Isn't that amazing? Can you imagine? The whole, almost the whole city gathered. And at this point, we see two very different responses. So there are lots of Gentiles and Jews who hear the gospel and receive it gladly. They receive it with joy and start spreading it to other regions. But there are some Jews who, it says, are filled with jealousy. And they start making life really difficult for Paul and Barnabas. So much so that in the end, Paul and Barnabas get kicked out of the region. And so they get kicked out and they move on to a place called Iconium. And again, Paul and Barnabas get to Iconium. They preach at the local synagogue and perform many miracles to show that they have been sent from God. Um, and again, we see two different responses. There's, there are lots of people, Jews and Greeks, who start to believe in Jesus. But there's also some Jews who are angered by what Paul and Barnabas are preaching. And some of them even plot to get Paul stoned. Um, and, but before that happens, before um, they stone Paul and Barnabas, um, Paul and Barnabas are able to flee um, from Iconium. And they flee to the next place, um, Lystra and Derby. Um, and anybody want to have a guess what they do there? They continue, yes, they continue preaching the gospel. Um, but then something spectacular happens in Lystra. So Paul heals a man who wasn't able to walk. And when the crowd see this, they are absolutely ecstatic. And they actually think that the Greek gods Zeus and Hermes have arrived. And now what do you do when you think Zeus and Hermes have just arrived at your doorstep? you get ready to sacrifice a load of bulls and worship them. So that's what the people want to do. But when Paul and Barnabas hear about this, they are absolutely appalled and shocked. And then Paul, being Paul, what would you do in such a situation? Preach a sermon. Preach a sermon. That's it. <laughs> so Paul, is a response to this, he preaches the sermon that you'll find in chapter 14, 15 to 18. He says, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Now, Paul finishes this sermon, and then the next thing we know is that Jews from Pisidian Antioch and Iconium come along. Now, remember, those were the people who had previously kicked Paul and Barnabas out of the region and had actually tried to kill them. So now they turn up in Lystra and somehow manage to um, get the crowds on their side, and basically, they finally succeed in stoning Paul. And I think if you ever needed an example of how fickle a crowd can be, I think this is it. So one moment, the crowds think, oh, wow, these are gods, and we want to worship them. And then the next moment, they're happy to get them killed. But anyway, so they, well, they stone Paul, drag him outside the city, and leave him because they think he's dead. But then it says in verse 20, but after the disciples had gathered round him, he got up and went back into the city. And the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. 
Now, I don't know what was going on, if that was some kind of a miracle, or maybe Paul was just as hard as nails, I don't know. But anyway, he gets up, walks back into the city, but then he also seems to think that maybe his work in this place is done for now, and this is where they start their return journey. And basically, they make their way back the same way they came. So they travel back to Derby, where instead of um, quickly passing through, they, get, um, they don't try to get home as quickly as possible, and instead, they spend time there and preach the gospel. And a large um, group of people become Christians. So then from there, they continue their return journey through Lystra, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch. And again, instead of quickly passing through to get home as quickly as possible, they spend time there, they spend time with the believers, they invest in them, they strengthen them in their faith, they encourage the new believers, they appoint elders, and they pray and commit, commit these churches to the Lord. And then, final stop is in Perga, um, where, again, of course, they preach the gospel once again, and then they travel to Italia, and from there they leave, they leave out Cyprus and go straight back to Antioch in Syria, where they had started. Um, and this is where the journey ends, and it ends with these words in verse 27. They gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. That's the journey. Wow, yeah. And, of course, there's lots that could be said, and there's lots we can learn from this. But like, like I said earlier, I just want to briefly look at two things that I think we can take from this. First thing is gospel relevance. Second thing, church importance. So let's start with gospel relevance. Now, I'm sure all of you will agree with me that if you try to teach somebody something, you have to do it in a relevant way, right? So I was thinking of Stuart. We've had Stuart over for food a few times, and um, Stuart is a physics and astronomy teacher. And Max and I love asking Stuart lots of questions about the solar system and exoplanets and all that kind of stuff. And Stuart is very, very good at explaining solar system and all these kinds of things to a six-year-old and myself, um, kind of the same level. And it's great, we learn lots of things. Now, I'm sure Stuart could give us a lot more detailed information, he could be a lot more sophisticated in his answers, but of course it would be completely lost on us, and we would probably just get bored and try to change the subject. So it's really important to be relevant to your audience, and I guess it's the same with the gospel, isn't it? Um, it has to connect with where people are at, and Paul knew this, and we see this in our passage. Um, if you look at Paul's first sermon in chapter 13, we can see how Paul understood who his audience was and what their worldview was. So first of all, in his first sermon, the long one, um, Paul knows he's speaking to Jewish people and people who are not Jewish but also believe in the God of Israel. So he starts talking about things that would have been really important to them. Um, so he talks about the history of Israel. He talks about key figures like Samuel and King David. He talks about the law of Moses. And he talks about God's promises to Israel. And then after he's connected with his audience, after he's shown them that he understands their worldview, he shows them how Jesus fits into all of this. But this is very different to this, the second sermon we've seen in Lystra in chapter 14. Because in Lystra, he preaches to people who believe in Zeus and Hermes and all the other different Greek gods. And so these people don't even believe that there's just one god. And so they have a completely different worldview. 
So Paul doesn't use scripture at all in his sermon. He doesn't talk about Moses or King David um, because those things would have meant nothing to his listeners. Instead, he's basically saying, look, there's only one God and this one God has made everything and all the good things you have, all the things you enjoy in life are gifts from this one God. And therefore, you should turn away from your worthless gods and turn to the one true God. So that's, that's the other sermon he preaches. Um, and I think looking at those two sermons, um, there's a challenge for us, isn't there? How do we speak the gospel in relevant ways? How do we share our faith that connects with people's worldview? And now, if anybody has spent more than five minutes talking to myself over the last few months, um, or has been unlucky enough to ask me um, if I'm reading any interesting books, you will have um, heard me talk about the flourishing life. So this is something I've become quite passionate over the last few months. Basically the question, what is the flourishing life? Or you could put it differently, what does the good life look like? Or what is a life worth living? Um, and there are a good number of theologians who've written on this topic. We've got some examples here. Um, and basically what they're saying is that every religion, every philosophy, every worldview really offers a particular vision of the flourishing life. They all try to address the question of what the good life is. And in essence, the Bible and Christianity can also be seen as addressing that particular question. And it can also be seen as offering actually a very good um, vision or an invitation to live a flourishing life. And um, the authors of the book Life Worth Living, that one on the left, um, say that in our culture, the most popular vision of what makes a good life is the long, happy, healthy life. They say, this is the vision that counts as wisdom. It is pitched to us incessantly. It comes to us from doctors, from well-meaning friends, from profit-seeking advertisers, and per perhaps most of all, from psychologists. So that kind of vision is all around, you know, it's all about living a long, healthy, happy life. That's all there is. Um, and um, yeah, that's the vision we are all surrounded by. But I think it's fair to say that this is also starting to shift. Um, I was working with a student a few months ago and he came for counseling and he was really unhappy and dissatisfied with life. On paper, he had everything, you know, he had lots of friends, he had lots of money, he, um, he was intelligent, he was working towards a career, he was, um, you know, really uh, uh, healthy as well. Um, but he's, he still wasn't happy, he was just really dissatisfied. And ultimately, he was kind of questioning this whole narrative of long, healthy, happy. Um, and what did I do? I recommended Life Worth Living book to him. Um, but on a more serious note, I think it shows how mo more and more people now, I think, want more than just long, healthy, happy. They want to know that there's meaning to life. They want to know that there's purpose. They want to know that their lives are worth living. And they want to know that their lives matter. And I think ultimately they want to flourish. And I think this is where the Christian message fits so well, because I think Christianity actually offers a very compelling and very coherent vision of the flourishing life. The theologian Joshua Jipp says that every vision of human flourishing needs to address five questions. And I've got a list here of those five areas that every vision needs to address. It's what is the nature of humanity and the supreme good? What do good good human character and morality look like? What do meaningful relationships look like? How should we deal with adversity, suffering, and death? 
and what habits and practices should we develop to attain the good life? And these are the questions that basically every philosophy needs to answer. Um, and without going into any detail, I reckon most of us will be able to look at the list and kind of see how Christianity really does answer all of these questions in a very compelling way, I would say. And so just thinking about this whole question of um, gospel relevance, I was thinking of two moms I sometimes talk to on the school run. So there's one mom who's a Bangladeshi Muslim, and when I talk to her about my faith, I'm probably a lot more like Paul in his first sermon, because we have so much common ground, and actually a lot of the things we believe, you know, we have, we have a lot of, yeah, things in common. Um, now, there's another lady on the school run who, um, when I talk to her, you know, she's born and raised Manchester. She's a lapsed Catholic. She's had lots of negative experiences with church. She's really suspicious of anything to do with religion. And so when I talk to her, I guess I talk to her very differently when I um, talk to her about my faith. And um, I would say I, will, I have brought up the flourishing life with her a few times or even used phrases like, you know, what is a good life? What is a life worth living? Um, so yeah, so I guess this is just um, a way of saying that we need to think of how we share our faith in ways that is relevant to whoever we're speaking. And so the second thing we're just looking at this morning really quickly is the importance of church. So I grew up in quite a conservative church where church services were most of the time pretty long, pretty boring, not very inspiring, and sometimes just cringeworthy, really. Um, and when I was about 16 or 17, I remember my friend from church saying, you know what, I don't think I need to go to church. Actually, it's a lot better for my faith if I just go on nice long walks and I enjoy nature and I feel much closer to God when I do that. And it's actually much better for my faith than sitting in a long and boring service. And I remember, I'd never heard anything like that before, and I just remember thinking, wow, that's so radical and so insightful. I was really impressed. But then, I guess you look at the passage we've looked at today, and you see how, you know, Paul is going through, through so much effort to plant all these churches, and you're kind of thinking, Paul, why did you bother with, you know, nearly getting killed a couple, of a couple of times and facing so much opposition? You really should have just gone on a nice walk and you should have told all those believers to just go on a nice walk every now and then because they clearly had the weather for it. <laughs> There's my joke. Um, yeah, but of course, looking at it from that perspective, we see how flawed that thinking is because it goes against God's purpose for us. God has designed us... Um, has designed things in a way that we need a community of faith um, and not be able to become the person I'm meant to be or the person that God intends me to be apart from being in a church community. Because in a church family, there are people from all different walks of life, different backgrounds, different experiences, different views, different ways of doing things. And obviously that creates the potential for loads of misunderstandings and arguments and disagreements. And that's why church is a perfect place to grow in love and patience and kindness and gentleness. Um, yeah, and that's why church is so important. Because as followers of Jesus, we really want to grow in love and patience and kindness, don't we? Um, but church isn't just important for character development. It's also crucial for our faith. 
I won't be able to grow in my faith on my own. I need other believers who I can talk to, I can share my doubts, I can wrestle with questions I have about faith. Um, there's nothing better than, you know, when I meet up with friends from church and they ask me things like, how is your relationship with Jesus? What are you wrestling with at the moment? What are you praying about? And then the best thing they do is they listen. And, you know, there's something really simple and just showing an interest, asking questions, and then you listen. And it just, yeah, it's really encouraging. And then usually at some point, I will probably talk about the flourishing life. Um, and the, the amazing thing is they still listen. And um, yeah, sometimes, yeah. Um, um, yeah, and it's just, it really helps me in my faith. It really encourages me. And I guess we all need those relationships, don't we, that are kind of centered on our faith and that help us to reflect and, on our faith and kind of work things through. Um, and I think Paul knew how important church community is for us as believers. We see in chapter 14, 22, it says they were strengthening disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. And then they also appointed elders and they prayed for them. And basically they made sure that those new believers were well looked after and that they would be continued to be strengthened and encouraged in their faith, even when Paul and Barnabas weren't around anymore. And then right at the end of their journey, What's the first thing Paul and Barnabas do when they arrive back? They gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them. I think, isn't that amazing? They've, you know, they've been on this journey for months, and the first thing they do is they get back and they get their church community together. And then, I love this, this is the last um, sentence in our passage. It says, they stayed there a long time with the disciples. And I just wonder whether, you know, now it was... Paul and Barnabas' turn to be, you know, encouraged and strengthened after such a long and difficult journey. You know, maybe they just needed a bit of TLC and, and the di disciples were able to kind of, you know, care for them and strengthen them. Um, but yeah, regardless, what we see is that being with other believers was really important to Paul and Barnabas. Um, and I guess I just want to encourage us to really prioritize spending time with our church community. Um, because it's in our church community where we get encouraged and strengthened in our faith and where, where we encourage others to, you know, be strengthened in our faith. And I'll admit, sometimes, you know, when you think of church, maybe the first thing that comes to mind is rotas. Um, it definitely happens to me sometimes that all I can think about is rotas or just think of church as jobs that need to get done. But I was thinking, maybe I just need to look at things in a different way. Because I was thinking, if I, um, if, you know, when I'm on the rota or when I'm serving on a Sunday, um, I'm in a way, on a Sunday or during the week, obviously church isn't just on a Sunday, but when I, when I serve in that way, in a way, I guess I help you to get encouraged and strengthened in, in your faith. And when you serve, you, in a way, help me to get encouraged and strengthened in my faith. Um, and I think through this serving and being served in our church community, this is how we become more and more like the people God wants us to be. And it's all part of the flourishing life. But that's another sermon. Um, but yeah, anyway, so just as we wrap things up, um, I was just, um, as I was preparing for this, I was thinking about my mom a lot. <clears throat> now, my mom grew up in a very, very strict a conservative church where there was a lot of fear around and, you know, people kind of getting really bullied into saying the right things or doing the right things. And as a teenager, my mom completely rejected that kind of faith. Um, and she actually left home when she was 16 just to get away from church and Christianity. 
But then somehow, a few years later, she somehow ended up at this um, Christian conference where for the first time she really heard the gospel in a way that connected with her and she could really hear it for the first time. And that just changed everything for her. And, you know, I don't know anybody who's loved the local church more than my mom. She, you know, she's always prioritized spending time with other believers and she always had this real hunger for being in fellowship with others. So if there was prayer meetings, community groups, you name it, she was always there. Even so much so, one time we were on holiday in Italy and she somehow found out that there was a tiny German-speaking church in the region. So she dragged us all along and we all had to go to that church. And it didn't help that my brother and I said, but we're on holiday, we don't need to go to church. But yeah, that's how important it was to her. So she dragged us all along um, to go to church in Italy. Um, but yeah, um, and now, well, I guess now she's not been well enough to go to church for a while. But um, the interesting thing is that she probably misses being with believers more than she misses her health because that's just always been so important to her. Um, and the reason why I tell you all this is because I think I can see in her life how the gospel or the hearing the gospel in a relevant way has made all the difference. And as a result, she's really de developed a real love and passion for, for the local church. Um, and I guess that's my prayer for, for all of us.